Okay, uh, good morning and welcome to the Murmurations podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by uh, Professor Paul Bowman. Uh, Paul is Professor of Cultural Studies at Cardiff University. He's published lots and lots of stuff, uh, most recently Deconstructing Martial Arts and has recently started the Martial Arts Studies podcast and a couple of years ago launched the Martial Arts Studies journal. So I wanted to talk to Paul today about more broadly cultural studies to begin with and with the question of is cultural studies trivial and then moving more specifically into uh, martial arts studies and some of the research that he's done in recent years. So morning Paul. Good morning Darren, how are you? I'm very good, thank you very much. Um, I think now is quite a good time to be chatting again. I know we chatted quite recently yeah. um, and we chatted a lot about martial arts before. Today I just wanted to, to chat more broadly about cultural studies really. I think now is quite an interesting time to be having a conversation because it feels like critical scholars will be arguing that cultural studies is as important now as it's ever been with what's going on. So um, I just wanted to pitch the question to you really. To, especially to those who are less familiar with cultural studies. Mm. Is cultural studies trivial? Um, no. There's two ways of going at it. We're recording this on, um, the, I think, the 12th of June or, uh, um, 2020. We've been in lockdown for three months and the uh, world has um, taken notice of the racial tensions in the United States of America. Again, we've, the, the Black Lives Matter protests have kicked off. We've had protests in Britain about Black Lives Matter. We've had famous instances of, the, 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 the recent movement has been to try and kind of decolonize British history. So the, the, the throwing in Bristol of the statue of um, uh, Lord Colston, who was a, a slave trader who became a millionaire in Bristol. Uh, in the water has provoked all kinds of discussions about the about decolonizing British history, about British history's colonial past and the violence upon which um, so many cultures and empires and nations were built. And I think that cultural studies, if you look, has been one of the, the, the few academic areas that have engaged with these issues from the start. Cultural studies was born as a concern with um, several different things. Um, first of all, things that you could call decolonizing, right? Decolonize. So, so cultural studies was born from a, a dissatisfaction with sociology, dissatisfaction with English literature and English studies, dissatisfaction with anthropology, because these disciplines were so streamlined and kind of, let's just say, so aristocratic and so elitist, so that on the English literature syllabus, you are reading uh, a big long list of dead white guys. The canon of, of, of English literature was a, was a canon of dead white guys and questions were asked about, you know, what about the women? What about poor people? What, what about non-whites? What about colonial subjects? What about, what, what about all of this? And also in terms of, in disciplines like, you know, emergent disciplines like sociology, the concerns were very kind of high social. Cultural studies uh, in the Birmingham University tradition of people like Stuart Hall was basically a broadening of those questions and those concerns. Um, to, to ask, well, what, where, where are the women? Uh, where are the non-white voices? And I think that what we're seeing now um, is, a kind of, is a kind of expression of, of the same problematics that cultural studies has been thinking about for many decades now. Not just cultural studies, I'm not claiming 
cultural studies is the birthplace of, of political consciousness. But cultural studies isn't trivial because if you look at the concerns of cultural studies since the 1960s, it's the things that are coming back front and center now, racism, anti-racism, sexism, anti-sexism, the history of colonialism, questions of heritage. What do we do with these statues? Like, oh, should we, should we tear up a past and throw it in the bin? Or is that just a terrible kind of revisionism that is, is as ugly as the, as, as, as the violent history before? So no, it's called trivial. People think cultural studies are trivial because it's long looked at things like media studies, soap operas, pop music, popular fiction, things that people think are trivial, but they're not trivial because we live them. We love them. We, we, we come in from work and now we put the television, well, we used to put the TV on, now it's the computer yeah. or whatever we put on. So short answer, no. Excellent. Um, the, on the, the, the Bristol, the statue in Bristol, what concerns me about the way in which that story is being talked about is just the very simple story of uh, a mob on a protest, rip a statue up, throw it in the water. And actually, there's been a long campaign to actually think about what could be done with this statue. This wasn't just a mob going and ripping it up and throwing it away. There's been a long campaign where people have been suggesting this be relocated to a museum or um, uh, a, a, a plaque put next to it to recontextualize it. Yeah. All of these kinds of things that could have revised its, its kind of cultural purpose or what it means to people um, or draw in atten more attention to the past that it represents, which would have been a much more uh, perhaps progressive way forward. But it does concern me that that's all being left out and it's just a mob ripping it up well i think it, it depends where you look i mean i, I um, obviously we live in in social media and we we are in our own echo chambers and, and if people disagree with us we get annoyed and we silence them or we unfriend them or we you know unfollow them or whatever but actually i mean i've been quite passively listening to bbc radio 2 radio 4 you know when you're in the kitchen doing stuff the radio's on and I've, I've heard some quite balanced debate. I've seen some quite balanced journalistic article, well, journal, journalist, journalism articles, journalism, um, especially in the, the newspapers that I would most be inclined to read, such as the, the kind of broadly intellectual left-leaning press like The Guardian. I haven't looked at a lot of the tabloid debates around that, but I know that I've seen a lot of the, a lot of the reactionary responses, such as, the, like, you know, memes, online saying no white person has ever owned a slave no black person living has ever been a slave so let's just move on and it's like they go hang on a minute it's more complicated than that mm. i have seen some quite complicated some quite subtle and complex discussions in the mainstream media but it, it's one of those things every it's a hall of mirrors isn't it it's where you look and it's how your yeah. chamber is laid out so I don't know, I think that what I've seen of, of, of the, the, the institutional voices and the institutional stakeholders involved, that it, there, is a, there is a serious debate going on about how do we engage with this, shall we call it a problematic cultural past? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think what the problem I was talking about was more the, the polarised social media spitting of the debate. That's really what I meant. Um, and again, it's, it's that problem of the the two extremities you're either this you're either one or the other and I think I think that's what's really important about cultural studies is that it's when it's at its best it's trying to cut through that and not be um just just pulled apart by the the, the kind of polarization that we keep seeing yeah I mean Stuart Hall who was you know the the director of the center for um contemporary cultural studies in Birmingham 
not the TV present, not the shamed uh, TV presenter of the seventies, but the yeah. the, uh, the the black um, academic who died recently. Um, it still feels recent to me. Um, he he once said, "Cultural studies is not about looking at a text and saying that's racist, throw it in the bin. That's sexist, throw it in the bin. It's about looking at the way that." A cultural context or a media context or an environment is racialized so you can look at the shift the cultural studies would do if you're Stuart Hall you do what he would call a conjunctural analysis where you look at all the factors that seem to be all the ingredients that are going into a situation that affect what we think at any given time and the affect who we think the bad guy is whether that be um, you know post post war uh, Pakistani immigrants, or whether it be immigrants from from the Caribbean, or whether then subsequently it becomes immigrants from the former uh, from Eastern Europe, from the former Soviet Union, and so on, because where society is racialized in different ways, and the media feeds into this and generates moral panics, and people get organized around different issues, and so it's not about evaluating good or bad and right and wrong it's about being able to take a stand and go this is where people's passions are and this is these are the cause of the passions and these are the interests behind the passions uh, and and these are the stakes and these are this is the the kind of this this is how we might ethically navigate these waters or pragmatically navigate the waters so for instance um after the stephen lawrence murder and the stephen lawrence inquiry stuart hall was also on a on a, the inquiry uh, panel and that was the panel that produced the concept of institutional racism and put it out there in the world and said the the London Metropolitan Police w was let's say was institutionally racist which is why there were systemic failures that led the police to be able without thinking in that kind of unconscious bias sense treat black people very very differently to white people and that that is what needs to be addressed on a structural institutional on a structural institutional level so a cultural studies is useful for that kind of critical thinking about what are the institutions what are the mechanisms what is the status quo what power does the media have what do the, what role are the politicians playing and it is precisely about trying not to polarize it's like you look at how a situation is polarized i think why and what could be used to kind of maybe alleviate a tense situation or or, or modify violence into into you know some kind of agonism rather than antagonism yeah yeah i mean when i look at my social media and i i look at the people who i drink with on a friday night or would drink with normally on a friday night uh and they're good people they're really good people but they see this a lot of them see this debate as uh we're we're being accused of being racist or all lives don't matter and that that it it's that's the concern is how how i think the question is and i'm not expecting you to just answer it on the spot but how can we really move on to that divisive discourse by bringing these this this kind of context that you've just displayed so well more prominently into the into the kind of public debate but it's hard that's a big deal. Yeah, I think that people people live in contradictory worlds at the same time, don't they? I mean, on, on the one hand, someone could could like something that a real left winger shares and a real kind of some a real, you know, like woke kind of person shares, and then something that's really racist or really stupid or really ignorant. And we could people can 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 be racist and can be and people will be racist and will be sexist and will be prejudiced in ways that they 
aren't aware of and would react quite violently to say, I am not a racist, I am not a sexist, I am not homophobic. Mm. Um, but I think that the responsibility of, of us to our friends, my, my first reaction is, is always one of you know, taking the moral high ground. And as a person, not as a scholar, but as, as me, um, but I want, them, I want them gone. I don't want to hear them. I don't want to speak to them. I want them gone. I'm angry at them. But a lot of the, the, the debates recently, the, the, the mainstream cultural debates about, you know, what, what is the relationship of white people to this, this Black Lives Matter movement? And um, we should be involved and we should be speaking to each other. And, if, and, 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 you know, because just because like we might all be sitting in a room, we might all be white men. And if we get the homophobic or racist or sexist statements, it's our responsibility to say, oh, come on. You know, that's not, have a think about what you've just said and, and can you think about, and maybe we don't want to have arguments in the pub on a Friday night. We don't want to get angry and we've got to go, oh, come on, like, really? Yeah. I think it's our responsibility not to, and, you know, it's not just like not laughing at the joke. It's actually going, do you see why, can you see why that's wrong? You know, and it's a very simple thing. It's like what did Antonio Gramsci called it being like permanent persuaders. Mm. You've always got to be on duty, but you don't always have to be polemical. Yeah. If, you, just... if you're talking to your friend or an uncle or an auntie or someone who, you know, you want to be gentle with, I think you can still be gentle and go, I, I see, I don't find that funny because, or I disagree with that because. And it's, it, it, it's tricky, but that, you've got to try and do that, I think. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I try sometimes, and I'm, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm always, I, I sometimes it, nobody can finish a sentence and you do end up wasting half your Friday night having an argument. There's other times where I do just choose just to, to not engage or not laugh. And I don't sort of fulfill that duty that you just, you just mentioned. And then there's other times where you do feel like you have a mini breakthrough and you think, Oh, actually, mm. Oh, it's interesting when that person's not in the circle, that person's willing to drop their bravado for a minute. Yeah. And they're willing to show a bit of compassion. Yeah. None of us are one person. No, I mean, we have different personas and we play different roles in different social transactions and social interactions. And yeah. Yeah. And you don't want to be, you know, it's like Sarah Ahmed's Twitter um, account was like, she was feminist killjoy, wasn't she? But you know, she, she was, she was like, do we have to be the killjoy just because, especially when you move into the realms of, Oh, I was just having a bit of a joke. It's like, yeah, but you need to think about why that isn't funny or why I wouldn't find that funny or, or why that might be offensive. And would you say that joke to a room full of black people? Would you say a joke, that joke to a room full of women? And yeah, I mean, the, the same battles need to be fought all the time. And I'm not yeah. saying I am not sexist. I'm not saying that I'm not racist or that I'm not homophobic or transphobic or because these are all issues that we have to face up to as, as people. And we have to think about power structures and what our values are and so on and so on. No one is perfect. We've all got to be aware that we've constantly got to interrogate ourselves. And I think that cultural studies, to bring it back to cultural studies, yeah. is the field where students are en encouraged to critically engage with their, their biases, their prejudices, to look at the institutional supports or, or the traditions or the rituals that we live in and live through and the media environments that, that feed our imaginations. And cultural studies is, is immediate, like media studies and like much gender studies and, and so on and so on. Um, these are the academic environments that encourage um, uh, individual students to become critical, to, critical intellectuals really for the rest of their lives, hopefully to the extent that that might stay with them. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned two things there that, that overlap with 
some of my own interests. So one, one, one scholar that I'm particularly interested in is Carl Jung and the idea of the shadow. And the reason a lot of the things you're just saying in relation to cultural studies work quite well alongside the idea of the shadow is because we all have those subconscious or unconscious sides to ourselves that we like to just sort of push to one side and we say, well, that's not me. I, I you know, I, then we project all those negative parts that from our unconscious onto other people, because it's out there that the problem is we're all, you know, it's very easy for us to think we're, we're perfect and all the problems are out there. So confronting your shadow is a really important part of doing this kind of work you're talking about, because you can only start to really empathize and engage if you realize that the faults that we see in other people are faults that we carry in ourselves as well. And it's just our critical awareness of those faults that is important rather than pretending that we're perfect. Um, the other thing you mentioned was persona. Uh, so persona studies is a growing field and um, a lot of the research that you've done already on Bruce Lee, even if you weren't explicitly talking about or engaging with persona studies in its current form at the time, really connects well with that. So in terms of persona, do you want to talk about a little bit about your research on Bruce Lee and why Bruce Lee was a really uh, kind of important person in popular culture well I'm, i've given this origin story lots of times but it was never really about bruce lee for me bruce lee was a, a doorway into into something that i wanted to work out how to study sure because i i was i i grew up in cultural studies then uh, and cultural theory um so my phd was all really about like it was real hardcore kind of post-structuralist political and cultural theory um, but in that, in, in reading kind of post-colonial theory and post-modern theory and so on, I, I used to always think that Bruce Lee was a, was a very important figure at a very important time historically. Um, and so on the one hand, whenever I would mention Bruce Lee to other academics, they would like laugh because they thought he was trivial, right? They thought yeah, Bruce Lee yeah, yeah. was top socky. And, 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 and I would say, no, you don't, like, you don't know. You don't know the effect that Bruce Lee had on the world. And you don't know, A, how intelligent and clever and innovative he was and how amazing he was and he wasn't just a film star he wasn't just like we need an actor here's an actor do some kicks it was not <laughs> that it was really really revolutionary so so i wanted to write about bruce lee on the one hand to show the people who didn't um get it that that bruce lee ticked all the boxes uh, as a an incredibly important um cultural force popular cultural force um, like, you know, I would line him up with Elvis Presley, maybe Che Guevara as an idea, these kinds of figures, Muhammad Ali, these kinds of figures who are like enormously, Jimi Hendrix, these kinds of figure, right? Who were just like, wow, they totally changed the landscape. Um, but on the other hand, I also wanted to find a way to write about martial arts, something that I'd, uh, and physical culture generally, like, you know, weightlifting and, 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 and martial arts and bodybuilding and which Bruce Lee was equally obsessed with, but I didn't know how to do that because I'm not a historian. I'm, I didn't have, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not an ethnographer. I, I couldn't write a, a neutral history. Like here's the new history of martial arts in, I couldn't, I just wasn't equipped to do that. But what I was equipped to do was to carry out film and media analysis and put it into a cultural context and go, look at the way that, that Bruce Lee changed film. Look at the way that Bruce Lee put 
the very concept of martial arts on the map. Everybody wanted to do Kung Fu after Bruce Lee. He, he kicked off what is called the Kung Fu craze of the early 1970s. So for me, it was, it was two things. It was, let's take this guy seriously. Let's take this, not this guy, but this event, this, this, in, this intervention, I guess, not the persona, but yes, the persona, because he was a, a character who people wanted to follow, wanted to try and be like, yeah. admired, revered. Um, but you could also take him in different dimensions. Like for me, it was less about, I didn't want to be, I didn't really care about him as a person. I was, what it was, was what he seemed to offer in terms of uh, fighting. Genius yeah, yeah. And, and skill and, and tips and tricks and train like this and think like this and interact with your opponent like this. So there was all, it was all of that. And then that got me into being able to write about martial arts in the media, martial art, the relationship between the media representation and our everyday lives and practices. Because anyone I think who's walked into a, a martial arts club has in some sense been influenced by what they've seen on a screen whether that yes. be a game or a film or a, yeah. or, or a character. Or, and you go, I want to be like that. I want to be able to do that. Mm. And so I, I was interested in that relationship between the fake, the fictional, the, simu the simulation, and the lived, embodied, uh, passionate, trained, ritualized life, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's why it really interested me, because it wasn't just about him as a person but all of those other meanings and and thought different contexts in which he performed and appeared and so on and what it meant culturally um on that point then where bruce lee or the work you did on bruce lee took you or gave you the opportunity to talk more about martial arts studies tell us a bit about the response in the field of cultural studies to you kind of really trying to run run ahead with um martial arts studies as an established discipline in the field of cultural studies yeah well um <laughs> put it this way right if you um if you write an article that's got a word in the title like Zizek or Rancière or Badieu or Foucault or Derrida or Lacan or something like that and you put it on academia.edu and if you write another one that's just something about Bruce Lee or martial arts the one with the names of the theorists gets thousands of hits thousands the one with Bruce Lee or martial arts in the title get dozens moving up to hundreds over time. So when I was writing, when I was working and publishing and writing about cultural theory and political theory, it was like, uh, it was kind of like I was becoming a name, like I was becoming a theorist that you might line up with, with other theorists, like you might go like Ray Chow or Judith Butler. Or, and I, I could have, I could easily have just gone blah, 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 and just been slotted into and like sort of shoulder barged my way into that kind of space. But it was ultimately quite, I felt quite bored by that because like anyone can guff on about politics and how the world should be better and how we should be nicer to each other. And I wanted to, to engage with something that, and also writing about politics all the time just made me sad. Like it made me, like, it made me cross and, and sad. And I wanted to write about something that was important culturally and politically and ethically. Yeah. Uh, that was deemed important so so people it was a smaller audience a smaller crowd a lot of non-scholars would read this will read the stuff and would i set up, i had the first conference in 2015 we set up the journal in 2015 i published my first monograph on martial arts studies in 2015 and it was a much smaller crowd um uh but uh, people that 
I really wanted to speak to and really like speaking to. And I really like the fact that you're immediately speaking outside of academia as well. It's people who are real experts, but not professional academics. Mm. And we all get together and we all just share our love martial arts in different ways. We share this passion in different ways. Colleagues, uh, some colleagues dismissed it. Most of them thought that it was a weird, uh, eccentric thing to do and thing to be into. They still do. You know, it's like a weird, nerdy eccentric thing and you know one senior colleague actually just said why like you kind of wanted me said you shouldn't do this like you just why don't you you should do what you were doing before because mm. a lot more people will read that and you'll have a lot more of a, a kind of impact but the impact i wanted to have might have, yeah it might inherently be smaller and more kind of niche in britain but globally I mean, the, the interest in martial arts in East Asia and, and in America and all over, all over Europe is huge. Um, so the impact was one of, that's a bit weird, but, but as it's grown and as, as we've been connected up with more and more projects in different ways and more kind of political and cultural projects, it's, it's more obviously not weird, narcissistic and nerdy because there's mm. issues to do with health to do with uh, you know integration, to do with psychology, to do with to do with gender and, and trans and LGBTQ, and to do with globalization, and to do and once you can articulate clearly why this is a, a valid and useful thing to be involved in, people kind of go, okay, yeah, I can I can see that. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because within academia, you'll often get that steer or that advice on what's the best way forward according to the kind of you know uh the the most popular journals or the way to get more citations or all these kinds of things and they're not actually always going to be conducive to us making the contribution to the broader society that we really ultimately want to have yeah. um I, I mean i had i had similar advice with couple of colleagues sort of saying you need to think really strategically about where you publish where you publish and it was in its own right, it was sound advice, but I saw your journal as well, and I was like, well, not only is there that the, the Martial Arts Studies Journal has got this uh, focus that I like, but just even the fact that it's open access, the fact that somebody can go onto a website and download an article and read it without having to pay for anything, you think, mm -hmm. well, this seems so obvious that academia should be this accessible to anybody. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think the 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 thing is that um, because of the structure of, of university systems in Britain and in the US and, and in Europe as well, people are constantly chasing. It's almost like they feel like that the ship is on fire. They need to jump to the next ship, you know, and it's it's they're constantly running across a bridge that they feel is burning at the other end. And 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 this happens a lot, actually, where people think that they're making the right strategic decisions but actually what they are is disciplinary decisions that are conservative decisions that are that are that are that are often reproducing structures that should be destroyed so that why are we open access we're open access because we should be we can be universities can be it's pennies to produce an open access journal. Also, I think that if you talk about decolonizing the curriculum, we need to absolutely decolonize our publishing regimes because, right, if I, if I need to think about the journals I should publish in, right, they'll often have a, you have to make them open access as well now. So an article for me to publish in a journal I should publish in might cost 2000 pounds for that to be open access, which it has to be for other career reasons. Like you should put that into the research assessment framework and it has to be, 
open access. But what that my university can pay two thousand pounds for me to publish some article in some pre prestigious journal. But it, a, a university in an African country, or or in one of the countries on the Indian co continent or somewhere in Asia, they can't do that. So what we're doing is we are. Um, reinforcing structures of elitism and hierarchy that we should be utterly removing and all these publishers that say academics should pay to have their books published and that's that's ludicrous because where what are we funding what are we underpinning why why should we pay anyone to have our we can just put it online for free as long as it's peer-reviewed that's the, the unique thing about academic work is it should be peer-reviewed, blind peer-reviewed, it should go through all different forms of critique and testing and challenge. Uh, that's the difference between narcissistic publishing and academic publishing. It's or vanity publishing. It's like you have to be subject to the harrowing ordeals of people who are likely to hate and or disagree with your work. So, so as long as it's open, as long as it, that's happened, that's all you can expect from academia. Peer review should be free, everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots to talk about that idea of vanity publishing being a dated concept on the providing that it's peer-reviewed so providing you can get peer you, you you get a rigorous peer review process this idea of who it's published by and where it's published you really need to sort of move beyond yeah um so in terms of martial arts studies you've recently started a podcast Yes. Do you do you want to talk a bit about pop? Because I'm just starting this out as well, so I think this is going to be a a thing as well with with what's going on with lockdown. I think we're we're desperate for conversations and connection. Um, yeah. Just doing this now, I don't necessarily have the time, but I, it's good for the soul. Like, yeah. how have you found podcasting in relation to the to martial arts studies? Yeah, I think it's it's. So what happened was I had to finish because of lockdown. I had to finish my teaching online and I was trying to do lectures like so I'm talking to a PowerPoint or talking to a Prezi or talking to and it, I hated it because my voice was boring me and I hated it because I like to be in a room look at students you know if you make a witty quip or you think something's funny and you've got that whole interaction and I thought this isn't working for me so I decided that um, why didn't I just have a conversation with like a, another expert on the subject, given that we had to record it online anyway, and, and certain things like Zoom allow us to record conversations. So, because the students weren't giving feedback, because they're sitting at home going, because mm, they're not in a, the same room as you, you can't look at them in the eye and put that pressure on them, interpolate them as students and go, you have to answer my question or you have to get into this. So, I had conversations like on, on Rancière with Rancière experts, on political theory with political theory experts, and on, 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 on the body with different experts. And, and I found that I was really enjoying it because the start of lockdown was a bit weird and we were all calling our families every day, which we don't normally do. And that's <laughs> we don't normally do. But we weren't yeah. doing any other kind of stimulation. And I personally was finding the whole thing so disorientating. I couldn't write. I mean, I write a lot. I would, I would write every, every working day. I would make sure I spent an hour writing for me, like writing my research, my notes, my thoughts. But there's kids in the house. My wife's in the house. I'm in the house. And I just couldn't do it. And I found that I'd enjoyed the, the conversation so much that I would continue it as a, as a podcast with, because I've got, have, having organized the conference in the journal for five years, I have got lots of contacts. And I thought these are really interesting people I'd like to talk to the so-and-so about this subject and I wanted to talk to you about things around 
jujitsu and health and mental health and, and, and yeah. so on. And, and it was an interesting idea. I've enjoyed it. It's filled a gap in my life, which was the gap that would be writing because I still can't write because the temporality of the day is screwed up. But I actually mm -hmm. think that um, it's, it's filling another gap for, so my, the idea of martial arts studies for me was always that it should be a network and a field, like not a kingdom. So people come together, we share ideas, we peer review, we kick our ideas back and forth. Um, and it just needed a, 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 like a nexus. So that's, I'm not like the king of the field. I'm not, I'm, it's not my thing. No one pays me any money. I'm not in charge or anything. I just go, hey, let's have a conference. And people go, yeah, okay. Hey, let's have a journal. Come and put, and people go, all right then. Because academics tend to work on their own stuff and it takes someone else to say, come on, let's have a chat about that. So I do that. And, and, and I'm enjoying doing it. And I think that hopefully it's bringing it to an audience of people who wouldn't necessarily read the journals, wouldn't read the books, yeah. wouldn't get, couldn't get to the conferences if they wanted to because they're elsewhere in the world. And I hope that it's sort of adding an extra dimension, making it real, sharing the ideas. Because the martial arts as a field is full of myths and bullshit and, and, and weird ideas. And it's good to talk to real scholars, like real historians who really know about the history of China, can read Chinese, can read the classical Chinese, know about it, rather than go, oh, no, yeah, Tai Chi was invented on a mountain like 2,000 years ago. And it's like, <laughs> more complicated than that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, what do you think then? There's, there's lots and there's, there's so many things that, uh, we could talk about. I was going to ask you a bit about the UFC. So the, in terms of maybe a touch of serendipity and, and timing, but doing martial arts studies at a time when the UFC has gone boom yeah. um, and is attracting interest from audiences that would never have watched martial arts in the past. Yeah. What, what do, you, do you think that's really helped the field pick up, picks up, pick up some momentum? Uh, I think that the 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 media the global media success of of the ufc has brought the concept of martial arts and combat sports much more into the mainstream because it's in the concept of sport now in the west so martial arts were always quite niche quite um quite um you know unique that's places that you sent children to learn gross motor skills um and 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 you know a bit of resilience and but if you're an adult doing martial arts you were always a, a, a bit weird but then by the time you get to you start to get taekwondo in the olympics in 2000 and you start getting british gold medals 2012 2016 and then boxing and you get women's boxing and then you get the ufc and you get ronda rousey and then you get conor mcgregor who british people get confused and think that because he's from ireland therefore he's british right because they <laughs> especially english people don't know what britain is right and where its borders are <laughs> so yeah, he speaks he speaks English. Love, love love <laughs> so um, so I think you get it moves into the mainstream between 2012 and 2015, and I think that it's recast martial arts as something that's normal and acceptable because it a lot of it becomes sport. So you're not just a weirdo, either a hippie who's doing tai chi or or kung fu, or a weirdo who's doing some kind of ninjutsu or krav maga, and therefore you're like you're, you must be a bit screwy, right, in the head. It's it's acceptable. It's a norm. It's it's sports centers. It's normal stuff now, um, and I think the UFC blazed that trail big style to make it more intelligible. And you know, and, and the UFC became less brutalized, less brutal, less obviously brutal. I think that really helped it. Um, 
yeah, the UFC has been, since 1993, it's had a huge impact on martial arts practice around the world and on the status of martial arts around the world. Not all good, but it's certainly raised, it brings things into the public consciousness and the practitioner consciousness that would otherwise not have been there. Yeah, I didn't realise until the other day that it was, as an organisation, it was like that just before Dana White bought it and Dana White kind of came in just at the right time and until then when it, sh it kind of really took off, it was really struggling as an organisation. Yeah. Um, you've just published a piece, haven't you, about masculinity and uh, representation in the UFC or media representations around the UFC. Do yeah. you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's really interesting. Uh, well, the, uh, there's a, uh, it, it was, a, the idea was a guy, um, a professor in Durham, at Durham University called uh, Kai Schiller, who, who, who was interested in masculinity and combat sports. He's, I think he's interested in sport and masculinity and, and the way that that's changed and functions in different ideological contexts over the years. And I've never wanted to talk, I don't like to talk in an established theme, like, so I don't want to talk about cultural appropriation or toxic masculinity because these are just like kind of really nebulous populist kind of themes. Mm. But I thought it was a good opportunity to hit some of those themes and to try and do something different with them. So I, I, I wrote a provocative title and it was Intoxicating Masculinity and it's about toxic masculinity and it's about MMA hard men um, and media representation. I thought I'd just try and draw people into this by hitting a lot of key terms, toxic masculinity, uh, media representation and so on uh, and my argument was well, I really it was inspired by a Grayson Perry uh, television series called um, All Man and the first episode was called Hard Men and Grayson Perry goes to County Durham and Newcastle and he, and he sees these MMA fighters and he kind of scrapes at their, at their exoskeleton of toughness and watch them fall to pieces and cry and talk about how they've been traumatized and brutalized and so on by either personal you know misfortune or the socio-political destruction of the northeast economy um and i wanted to and he it, it just raised loads and loads of interesting questions and people should watch the grace and perry series if they can it's just fabulous about the construction of masculinity and my i guess a strong part of my argument was that there's nothing inherently macho about mma it's just the stories we tell about it yeah, and that, that if you, you can, if you can see how easily Grace and Perry can go in and tell a different story about it, and actually get practitioners to say, yeah, like some people are saying, I love it because it's a performance, and I love the performance of it, and I love putting the face makeup on, and I love doing this. And other people go and I do this because I, it's the only place I feel happy. It's my happy place. And and so we only tell we tell hero narratives. We tell. I know you're interested. In, you're interested in narratives and and cultural narratives and how we live through them and how important they are. And they are important. And I totally agree with that. And we should consciously think about not worrying about whether MMA is too violent or something like that. But what kind of media rep does it get? What kind of stories do we tell about it? There are so many different stories to tell about masculinity and femininity and gender and stuff. And I think that those stories are streamlined by the media. So my argument was, yeah, MMA is a thing, but our access to it is nine times out of 10 through stories about it. Yeah. Um, and why don't we tell some different stories about MMA and masculinity? Yeah, because the stories are all there to be told, especially people who read about fighters or interview the fighters or whatever. The stories are there. It's just what we choose to pull out as part of our kind of cultural mythology around the UFC. Yeah. Um, 
Excellent. Well, I was going to keep this to about half an hour, which I think yeah. we've run out of time. So five minutes we've been talking, surely. Five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's always five minutes. Uh, but thanks very much for talking to me again. And uh, I hope people enjoy listening to us. And uh, I'm sure I'll speak to you soon. So thank you very much. Thank you, Darren. Cheers. Bye-bye.